Hello, welcome to Late To It. I'm Naomi Frisby. I'm Kirsty Dill. And this is a podcast about reading books at the right time. Kirsty, what have you been reading on time this week? I have been reading Laurie Moore, who is an author that I have been aware of for quite a long time. And I have read a previous book by her. Um, I read her novel, um, A Gate at the Stairs. It was long listed for the Women's Prize or whichever iteration of what it was called. Um, about 10 years ago 10 11 years ago something like that I don't even was it still the orange then I can't remember anyway that prize um and I really liked it and then promptly didn't read anything else by her for reasons of I don't know just never getting around to it so um I'm looking for something quite short to read this week in between (laughs) other stuff um I read a collection of her short stories that came out in 2014, I think it was, 2014, 2015, I think it was 2014, uh, called Bark. And it's a collection of eight stories. The, the Two of the stories in the collection are kind of a bit longer. They're sort of three times the length of the other stories. Um, but they all deal with people over a period of time or maybe more accurately, the effects of the passage of time on people and on their relationships. Um, you know, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of divorce. There's a lot of, um, uh, you know, people encountering their ex. There's a lot of, you know, people realizing predominantly women realizing that, you know, the, the life that they're living is maybe not what they signed up for. Um, there's, uh, you know, this is actually one that's it's what I liked about it is there's a real kind of wry humor to it it's very observational it's very um you know there's a sort of um there's a wry smile about it even talking about stuff that is 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 kind of tragic the last story in the collection there is a woman who uh goes to a wedding and it's the woman who's getting married it's her second wedding and her ex-husband her first husband has been hired to play the music at the second wedding and it's this kind of hilariously tragic moment whereas everyone's walking into the church he's playing a very stripped down bare piano recital of want you back (laughs) oh no and then later on, like you see him again, and later on he's playing a version of "I Will Always Love You." Oh, um, it's just all quite, but the way it's written is really funny. Um, but in a kind of, uh, in a kind of very observational, like everyone's obviously feeling quite tragic for him, um, but also he's slightly oblivious to the the whole thing, and he's just like playing his mournful songs at the mm-hmm. wedding that he's been hired to play at. Um, so it's really good. It's it's very very good. It's it's um, definitely it's it's made me want to go back and read more by her. Um, and I think there is quite a lot to read. So I will I will investigate. I feel like she's an author who's much better known in America than she is over here. Like obviously there's I've been aware as I said I've been aware of her. There's I know there's like editions of her collected stories and stuff. And obviously there's the novel that was sort of long listed. I can't remember if it was shortlisted or not. That was quite a while ago, but it's, I don't know, I feel like she's maybe not as well known as she could be over here. No, I've got her collected stories and I've not started them, (laughs) says shamefully. Um, But apart from the um, second wedding, that all sounded slightly too relatable. (laughs) 
I was like, this sounds good, but almost like I could have written it myself. <laughs> ah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the first story in the collection is told from unusually um, for the rest of the collection. It's told from the man's perspective. And this this man has um, got divorced. You, you know, you find out very early doors that he's divorced from his wife. Um, has been for a few years. He's got um, a child who's like a teenager by this point um and he's sort of starting to dip his toe into the dating world some years on but it's just the way these kind of um little bits are sort of dropped because all the all the way through he's kind of kind of going oh you know what I'd really like to do is go and cut the brakes on her my ex-wife's car and you know you get it was all about it's all her fault etc etc and then it's sort of dropped in kind of going well you know mild flirtation with a colleague and then she actually went and had an affair you know so it's all kind of like, oh so it was your fault right yeah okay fair enough I'll see you there's that slightly tragic um divorced 50 odd year old man um who's just furious at the world and his and his lot and then has a completely disastrous um foray into dating um it's a very good story it's 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 um I enjoyed it a lot all I've got in my head now Kirsty is get some therapy (laughs) (laughs) you'd never do that (laughs) no no what about you what have you been reading i am bang up to date this (laughs) week um because it was my birthday last week and my stepson bought me a brand new um graphic novel which is called crushing by sophie burrows and the like really cool thing about this is there is very little text in it. It's nearly all done through the artwork. Um, so it's about two people, um, this woman and there's a woman and a man um, who I think must be like 20s, late 20s, maybe 30-ish. Um, they are both living in London. They're both lonely and isolated and we start by following the woman and it's drawn in a way that it most of it's um in sort of grayscale but those two are picked out in red Mm. so you can always pick them out when they're on the pictures and it goes through sort of their day a couple of days um I think it's it's told over quite a short period of time but yeah over a few days um and and things they get up to and they sort of almost um, meet each other at different points and things happen to him and some of it's really sad like he mm. gets into an accident he gets knocked off his bike and he's in the hospital and it's like the person who's holding his hand when they reset his arm is the nurse because she's the only person there for him and then he has to oh. get a taxi home and I was like oh, oh. <laughs> gutting um, yeah it's just really beautifully done and bits of mm. it are really funny as well um, oh, there's a bit where She's on a dating app and she has a very common sort of dating. She's talking to this guy who's got a picture of him with a cat and she asks him about the cat and thinks it's all going to be great. But within three interactions, he's offering dick pics. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just really smart and clever. And the fact that it's like driven by the, the drawings, mm. it's stunning really. And you get these pages um there's these double spread pages that are just all black or all red or all white to like denote the mood when something's happened it's it's really clever and really beautiful yeah I want to read more graphic novels I I feel like I used to read more 
I definitely went through a stage a while ago of reading quite a few um, and then just sort of stopped for reasons I don't really know. Um, so I want to, I'm definitely keen to read more because the ones that I have read in recent years I've always really enjoyed. Um, I think that's just because it's, it, I mean, it might just be as simple as the fact that because I'm not involved in that aspect of publishing at all, I sort of lose track of what's, I find it diff more difficult to keep up with kind of what's new in graphic novels because I feel like I'm I'm probably not following the right people or you know looking in the right places but um yeah it's definitely something I wanted to read more of yeah I don't I don't read them very often I tend to go through the like lists um at this time of year where people you know like the Guardian they'll do a list of yes and sort of start there and see and I've got a couple of friends who read who read a lot more graphic novels than I do partly I think because compared to a novel they're quite expensive I mean because they're mm. bigger and there's the artwork and I mean I'm not criticizing the cost but in terms of reading like lots of them then you know cost prohibitive but yeah indeed and they're not as easy to read on e-reader unless you're reading it like on a full-size ipad in color it's not yeah. kind of Kindle friendly, particularly. No, and it, it's not going to cut it for me on there, I'm afraid. Like, I want to be able to see the artwork properly. Um, I will say, though, if people are listening and they want to get into graphic novels, I'm going to recommend my favourite of all time, which is The 100 Nights of Hero by Isabel um, Greenberg. I want to, I hope that's right. I think it's Greenberg, um, which is amazing and is about this um, woman who falls in love with um her like handmaiden I guess but mm. she um yes the her husband thinks that um she'll cheat on him and he, he basically tries um his friend says that he's going to seduce her while the husband's away and she has to stop him so what she does is tell him she tells him stories every night to stop him basically raping her um which sounds grim but it's really brilliantly done um yeah so that's great. So that's my recommendation if you want to. Duly noted. Duly noted. Right. So last episode of this. We're here again. Mm. Um, already the last episode in the series. Um, and we have two books of. Uh, the book Harlan is by Bernice L. McFadden, uh, which is published by Jacaranda and came out in 2016. And then we have The Book of Memory by Patina Gappa, published by Faber. And that came out in 2015. And that was long listed for the, oh, it says here on the front of my copy, the Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction. It was obviously in the Bailey's phase. Um, on the face of it, there's actually quite a bit in common between these two books. They are both novels that deal with memory very obviously in the case of the book of memory um both books that feature prison both books that feature real historical people in a fictional world um yeah sort of there's actually quite a lot to connect them mm, there's a murder in birth as well yeah. so, the book of harlan by benice l mcfadden published by jacaranda is about um a man called Harlan, although before we meet him, we meet his parents. They live in Macon, Georgia. Um, 
they have a very quick courtship. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those. I swear this only happens in novels. I'll get we'll get people tweeting now going, no, no, it happened to me. But I'm like, do people really get pregnant that quickly? <laughs> First time I had sex and now I'm pregnant. Anyway, um, yes, so. And then Harlan comes along and it becomes more about his story, although his parents are alive for quite a lot of it. Mm. Um, lots of it is set during the Jazz Age, Louis Armstrong's part of it. Um, mm. It was between characters, so we also see quite a lot from Blizzard, who's Harlan's um, friend and partner in music and other other um, expeditions. <laughs> Some, some good, some not so good. And then um, they go to Paris to play Montmartre. Uh, they're invited across there and then can't get out in time before the Nazis um, take them and they end up in Buchenwald. And it continues after that, but we'll talk a bit more after about that in a minute. Um, I want to start by saying that apart from a bit of the ending, which we both got issues with, which we'll try and talk about without spoilers, Mm. Uh, I really enjoyed this. I thought it was really well written. I love jazz stuff anyway, so I thought that was great. I thought Harlem was a really interesting character. So with Lizard, I love Lizard. Um, oh, I love Lizard. It's always interesting when one of the like minor characters <laughs> becomes one that that you know everyone likes. I say everyone. That's like us two being representative of the whole population, which we are. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, I, I raced through it actually, really enjoyed it. That's where I'm going to Yeah, start. I did. I, it's, it's a proper, you know, page turner. I, I went through it really quickly. Um, I was really taken actually with Emma and Sam's story, which are Harlan's parents. And in some ways, as much as I also, you know, really loved Harlan and Lizard and, and their story, there was something about Emma and Sam's story that I found incredibly compelling um, and had sort of this emotional depth, which I don't think was in all of the rest of the book. Um, you know, they meet really young, um, as you alluded to, get together very swiftly um, and have to get married because um, Harlan is on his way. Um, but then they're just they, they, they live this sort of peripatetic lifestyle as they are trying to just find what they're doing and settle down and and music you know music is sort of in the blood you know Emma's a piano player a piano teacher and actually what they do is leave Harlan with Emma's parents for the first few years of his life and I thought some of the scenes where they could have leave and turn up and sort of go in and out of their son's life was incredibly moving. Um, and I felt that kind of gave Harlan this sort of emotional depth as well, because you know, you know, you see so much of his, his early years at a remove because of Emma and Sam. Um, that actually when he rejoins them, when he's a little bit older and they move to New York to Harlem, Harlan in Harlem, um, and he then goes on to live this kind of also peripatetic musical lifestyle. You can kind of see the roots of it, sort of, you kind of, despite, you know, you, despite the 
um what am i trying to say despite the fact that his parents coming and going was obviously quite a difficult thing he's ended up coming and going himself yeah there's a bit where she says um this is this is well less than a third in i think you can't expect a child not to become a product of his environment. If you're a drinker, you'll raise a drunk. If you're a single mother, trips in men in and out of your bedroom in front of your girl child. Mark my words, in time she'll claim a corner and charge money for what you gave away for free. Kings and queens raise princes and princesses. That's just the way it is. So who knows why Sam was floored when Harlan, barely 15, walked into the house, dropped his school books on the floor and declared, I'm done with guitar, going to pursue guitar picking full time now. <laughs> I mean, yeah, exactly. They, you know, his his parents have spent all this time trying to build a career through music, mm. um, and then are stunned when Harlan's like, "Do you know what?" <laughs> and have spent all this time around Lucille, who we've not really mm. met. So Lucille's Emma's best friend, and she leaves. So when she's um, when Emma's pregnant with harlan lucille leaves on tour she is based on lucille nelson hegemin who was the second african-american blues singer to record after bessie bessie smith i think was mm, yeah um in the book I'm, I'm questioning because i watched um ma rainey's um black bottom on netflix last week oh yes also one of the first i think i think i think she says in the film that she's the second um but anyway she, she denies that Bessie Smith even exists. <laughs> Who knows whether she's telling the truth or not? Um, yeah, so she's she's based on Lucille um, Hegemin and she goes off on tour and she comes back and obviously like she brings the lifestyle with her and it's her who's living in New York City um, when they decide when Emma and Sam decide that's where they're going to stay and they're they're entranced by the lifestyle and you know what she's doing and how she's living so Harlan's grown up around that hasn't he so yeah attractive to want to do what she's doing yeah absolutely and funnily enough although I really liked Lucille as a character she again she fulfills a really important role actually at various points throughout the book but one of the scenes that sort of slightly stuck out to me was there's um, a party at Lucy and Lucille because she's had this, you know, musical success. She's got this big place in Harlem. She's throwing this really opulent party. Everyone who's anyone um, is at this party. Loads of blues and jazz musicians. And um, Emma and Sam go to this party. They're visiting. It's their first time in New York. And you know everywhere you look there's a celebrity and there was just something about the way it was written that felt a bit like a list of names mm -hmm. it was sort of and then there was the legendary such and such talking to the you know um I don't know there was just something about the way that bit was written that made it slightly glaring to me as if it felt more that bit felt more like a piece of recording history of like all the people that were there than it did like that it felt like it flowed in the novel sense um and I'm not sure how you fix that like I'm not sure what she should have done instead but there was just something about that scene that didn't quite flow for me I wonder if it's to do with the perspective that we're seeing it from because 
we sort of we don't there, there are bits where she goes into other people's lives so we see quite a lot of lizard we see his life from his perspective but mm. we never really see lucille out on the road so we don't see her working with it well we do a little bit she takes harlem with her um but again we see that from harlem's point of view and i wonder if it's to do with the fact that we're sort of in emma and sam's shoes seeing what they're seeing um yeah i think probably I'm speculating a bit here because I've never really tried to do it. <laughs> but I think if you're going to integrate those, but you have to make them feel like real people, as not as if they're like some sort of amazing one step removed. And I think perhaps that's what it is. Because there's a, a scene as well that, that I enjoyed before they go to, um, bef- is it before they go to Paris? Yeah. So the night before they go to Paris, which Lucille has arranged for them she she's not um singing any well she's not not singing anymore she's not touring anymore she's working as a nurse the guy who owns the club in Montmartre has called and said he wanted her to play and she's recommended Harlan instead mm. and the first trumpet is going with him and she organizes and she knows that he loves Louis Armstrong and she's been friends with him for a long time so she organizes him for, to come to the party and Lizard gets to play with Louis Armstrong but like he didn't feel like Louis Armstrong, but I don't know how you make Louis Armstrong <laughs> feel like Louis Armstrong. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Like how I mean, I don't know how you authentically portray Louis Armstrong when you don't authentically know him, and, I, and, and I, how we'd recognise it as such. Actually, that's a point. I mean, I I assume, and I didn't look it up. He tells this story, which is is very relevant considering what comes later in the book of. Um, he's wearing a Star of David mm. and Lizard sort of asks, you know, why he's wearing it as, um, you know, it would be unusual, I suppose, at that point to see a black man wearing a Star of David. And he's, you know, he says he's not Jewish, but it represents this um, family that was essentially a kind of surrogate family to him growing up. Now, I didn't go to check whether that is the truth of Louis Armstrong's background. I mean, I was going to say I assume it would be considering it's in the book, but considering something that comes later in the book, which I'm not going to spoil, I don't know. Um, So I think it raises an interesting question about how far you can or cannot fictionalise real verifiable historical figures like that story works within the narrative because it kind of foreshadows a load of stuff that's coming next but if it if it's made up entirely and not based in fact then it's I would argue a slightly clumsy way of doing it. Does that make sense? It does. I want to counteract you a little bit there because I think one of the things that she's trying to do is question um, who gets to tell history and what version. So interestingly, Essie Duggan's next book, which is a non-fiction um, essays, arrived, a proof copy arrived today. Um, and the first line on it is history is a construct on the blurb at the back. And and um, I was when I was reading this, I was thinking about her book Half Blood, Half Blood Blues, which got shortlisted for the Booker Prize, mm. um, which also looks at 
um, that goes straight into the group of black jazz musician, musicians in Paris at the time the Nazis arrive and what happens to them. So it had got some similarities with that, but also the back of the book, it's got um, this extract from Stephen Bourne talking about um, Holocaust Memorial Day and what he, the things he's written um, where he's, he's reframed um, the, ex well, amongst other things has reframed the Holocaust from the perspective of the black community. So there's, I think she's trying to do something really interesting and she doesn't quite pull it off in some places. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that because, yes, obviously history is largely told by the victors um, and you don't, you know, you know, it's it, you, you can't control the way that your story's told. I'm trying not to quote Hamilton, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is where my brain's going. Um, but yes, no, absolutely. And and who who tells what historical, you know, who tells what version of history is of course. I mean, that's historiography, basically, isn't it? I mean, there's like the whole discipline of it. Um, but it felt in this particular instance like a slightly clumsy plot device, is what I'm saying. Even if the intention was was a sound one. Yeah, the the problem that I had with what happens at the end that we're not going to spoil, which which is very neat for the narrative, but um, it sent me it it sent me out the story because I'm like I'm sure that's mm. what happened. I'm sure that's not where that person washed up. Um, mm. Even though it like it sort of merges something that people did do with the story of a particular very well known Nazi. And, mm not what they did or what happened to them um so I didn't quite buy it and that was frustrating because I'd really enjoyed it to that point and could buy with you know that Louis Armstrong story whether it's true or not I'd you know I'd, I, I I didn't think to question it it didn't send me out the book I didn't go looking for it mm. it was just when it got towards the end where I kind of went yeah I know that's not true <laughs> and then <laughs> so I suppose if you're going to do something like that, if you're going to try and pull something that big off, that bigger uh, sort of, it's not quite counterfactual, but it's close. I think you have to build some other counterfactual stuff in earlier. And perhaps mm. we Armstrong bit is, and I just missed it, but it's not. Really. I don't know. And I should have checked before we started talking about it in the podcast. Maybe I'll go back and we can edit it. Edit. This is true. Um, I don't know, but it, I think it actually probably even the fact that it's made me question whether is that story true or is that just convenient? You know, that in and of itself doesn't, that did take me out. Like there's foreshadowing and there's foreshadowing. You know, it did take me out of the, the, the narrative a bit in the same way that the um, bit at the end that you're referring to also did. Mm -hmm. um and the other thing that took me out of the narrative was what happened again I won't spoil it but what happened to Emma and Sam like you can hear the end because obviously they're very it follows Harlan sort of you know Harlan's in Buchenwald he's he you know he's there for the duration of the war more or less he comes home and and lives a good you know few decades afterwards and so you follow him through that time um 
and Emma and Sam, his parents, are alive for the majority of that. And obviously they're very elderly and you do see what happens at the end of their lives. But what happens at the end of their lives was so jarring that it it sort of made me, it, again, it took me out of the, the novel because it was just like, oh, that's, you know, convenient, essentially. And, you know, this book, I mean, Bernice McFadden has based it partly on stories from her own family. So Harlan is based on someone that was in her family with a different name. Um, Emma is based on someone that had a different name and so on and so forth. And so those, you, you can tell from the dates because she lists it all in the back of the book. You can tell from the dates that that particular jarring incident didn't happen or didn't happen in that way. And so while I'm not saying that, you know, weird things can't happen because clearly weird, tragic things happen every single day in the course of the narrative again it felt like a plot device do you see what I mean oh yeah I agree with you I felt exactly the same when it happens and this will be a spoiler for people who've read it but something very similar happens in a little life and it's the one thing that that, that, that people even the people who loved it because I loved a little life don't tweet me I'm not interested um, <laughs> <laughs> I just get people tweet me now going it's terrible what you talk about um yeah, it, even people who loved it like I did, they were, that something happened in a little life and everybody just went, nah. <laughs> and, it's, and it's exactly the same thing. So that's what it made me think of and it was frustrating. Mm. I think one of the reasons for me that some of these things are so frustrating is because the writing's so good in yeah. parts of the book. So one of the things I really, really loved is the way that she can summarise like just a whole kind of, I don't know, thing a whole area or some a whole like what's happened to a person in in a paragraph so there's a bit when Harlan comes back from being on tour with Lucille and he has lived a life on that tour <laughs> he has smoked weed for the first time he's got drunk and tried to play um, yeah. he's had sex for the first time like all of this has happened and and he gets off the bus <laughs> And this is from um, Emma's perspective. So, so just before this paragraph starts, Emma says, oh, she mumbled miserably. He's pissing straight now. <laughs> that, Harlan was taller and heavier and there was a shadow of dark hair above his upper lip. Gone was the carefree arm swinging gait, replaced now by a confident swagger historically hitched to men who frequented pool halls and whorehouses, drank whiskey before noon and kept a lit cigarette dangling from the knotted corners of their mouths. Those men carried switchblades in their coat pockets, pistols stuffed behind the waistbands of their trousers. They smoked dope, had children in every city, sorry, had women in every city and children they would never claim. Those men worshipped jewellery, money and pussy. They lived fast and died young. And I just thought that was such a brilliant summary of what he's become and who he is now. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, I, I don't wish to sound like I'm being super critical of this book, because I think it's a great book. I think it's really, really good. And I really enjoyed reading it. I think, as you say, it's because I liked it so much that those kind of couple of glaring bits that could have pulled you out of the reading experience, that's why they're so annoying because it was just, 
particularly, as I say, particularly for me, Emma and, and Sam's narrative, like the whole first half of the book, basically, I was right there. Mm-hmm. And then these kind of slightly glaring things happen. And it's it's disappointing. It, it feels disappointing because it's so good. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't I don't wish to put anyone off it. I think absolutely you should read this book. Mm. Um, it's it's really, really, really good. And I want to read more by her. I have got all the stuff lined up. I've got to um, because they've uh, the vintage um, reissued sugar this last year. Yeah, it's in the um, I think it's in the Richard and Judy Book Club WH Smith thing at the moment. Oh, exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just want to mention as well, before before we move on to the other book, we've barely talked about two of my favourite characters. I mean, the minor characters in here are brilliant. Yes, so, they are. Darlene, who isn't yes. actually in it very long because she has a very tragic... Oh, God, it's awful. Horrible. Like, tragic ending. But the chapter after her tragic ending... He is predominantly um, written in dialogue between two women that we're not told who they are. They're just people that, you know, live in the community who are chatting about what's happened. It is a stunning bit of writing. Mm. Um, Lizard, who has got quite the story. Lizard. We love Lizard. He's he's basically Mercutio, which I've just given, <laughs> given a little bit away there, but he is Mercutio. Um, is the Mercutio of this book and as yeah and does that he, he, he I don't want to give it away because I was like <gasps> when I found out what he'd done um yes he's really interesting as well and also John Darlene's um brother yeah. comes to play like quite a big part in things later on um, yeah he has a really interesting story so yeah there's all these like characters that felt incredibly real absolutely um I think in some ways some of the minor characters are the best bits of the book um that's not damning with faint praise but I I I think it's so easy for writers to get so focused on their main characters that 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 um more minor characters can end up feeling a bit two-dimensional and that is so not the case with this book like the 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 more minor characters they're what make it I think that's what sort of lifts Harlan up as well um which is not to say that Harlan isn't a rounded character he absolutely is but he's given a lot of light of shade by the people around him yeah absolutely you know and I think that is something that also happens in the book of memory by Ooh, look at that link. <laughs> oh, just, what a beautiful segue. So beautiful. Just glides right in there. Um, so the Book of Memory by Fatina Gaffa is a novel that is the, the, the device of the novel is that memory is a young woman who is in prison for murder. She has been given these notebooks to write down her story because there is a foreign journalist called um, Verna Sitola, who wants to, who is trying to basically get her conviction overturned because, um, as she said right at the beginning, you know, she made a confession under duress, killing this white man. Um, and uh, that's 
you know, she said she she only confessed because she was she was forced to by police, having been sort of kept um, in horrific conditions for a number of days. Um, so what you get essentially is is memory telling her own story. It is the book of memory in in several ways, and um, she is very clear on what happened to her in that she was nine years old. She has, um, she has kind of albinism. She, she's an albino. And at the age of about nine, she is sold by her parents to a white man called Lloyd and taken to live at his big, beautiful house called Summer Madness, where what you think, you know, if you, you've been told that a man has bought a young girl, it sounds, extremely nefarious but actually she's had this rather incredible life she has got this incredible education there certainly hasn't been any suggestions of anything untoward going on um you find out at various points that she's gone on to elite university that she's traveled she's spent time in various different countries um and then come back lloyd has died and she's ended up sort of carrying the can for it but of course what she actually does is she's going back and forth so you see glimpses of what's happening in the prison um you see glimpses of what happened in the recent past you have glimpses of what happened in her childhood um and obviously over the course of the novel we unravel what actually happened to Lloyd um which is not what it seems dun 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 about to go but do we because because we never get a straight answer we get no we don't I think we can I I made an assumption about what happened to him certainly Mm. but Mm. I can't reveal that (laughs) (laughs) it's great podcast listening this (laughs) just people just need to read the books yeah then come back and talk to us We'll see yeah. you on Twitter. Now, I, I'm coming at this from a slightly different perspective and I'm just going to make it all about me. Sure. For my narcissism this, <laughs> at this point. But I read this when it was listed for the Women's Prize, Bailey's Women's Prize, because um, it was at a point where I was shadowing the prize and I went back to read my review, which is up on my blog if people want to go looking for it. But I will tell you, it's not very good. <laughs> and it was really interesting because I thought when I was reading it, I did remember some bits about it, but not loads. Um, and the, the amount of stuff that I had missed, mm. that, like reading it five years later, where I feel like I've had an education mostly via Twitter yeah. and then going up to read things myself, um, okay. made this a really different experience. Yeah. And the things that I sort of picked up on is how much of this was about colonialism and mm. about um, why it's taking land in Zimbabwe because part of this is set around the time, or at least the, the sections with um, Lloyd, some of those are set around the time where there were um, people reclaiming the land, like violent, violently reclaiming uh, the land from white people. Um, yeah, so that was really interesting. And also this idea that we've just talked about with the Book of Harlan about rewriting history and who gets to tell it and 
how much from a particular perspective can be true. Mm-hmm. I think she asks lots of interesting questions about that. And as and as things are stripped away, it becomes, um, I think she questions more and more how much any one perspective can give you a proper view of what's happened. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the whole irony of the title, the book of memory, is that memory is fallible. Mm. Um, and even where memory isn't fallible and you do remember the literal mechanics of something that happens if you don't have all of the context you can reach very much the wrong conclusion um and without you know I, I don't want to say any more for, for for fear of spoilers but that's certainly the case with memory you know she may have known the sort of she knows what she saw on a particular day but she does not really know what she saw, if you see what I mean. And there's so much um, there's so much context missing um, for her that when you know she finds out towards the end of the book the reality, you know, the, the the reality of what's happened in her past, it it you know it makes her go back and question everything about herself. One thing that I it really interests me is how that relates to Lloyd's death, because on the one hand, you could see them quite separately. You know, her learning about what happened at a time that predates her living with Lloyd. But on the other hand, it's it's that idea of context that, you know, she understands more about Lloyd as a result of understanding more about herself which I think is handled incredibly well. There's, there's, it's one of those novels that's got so many layers to it that you can sort of go back almost in the way that you have actually and kind of, uh, you know, you, you, you've been able to in a, in a way that I suppose, you know, not everyone can by going back and seeing what you thought about something five years ago or whatever it was. But there's just so many layers to it. Yes, look at me that my embarrassing thoughts are on the internet. <laughs> everyone to view um no I think there's a lot of connection between what we were saying about the book of Harlan and that section where that I read out where she talks about if you've come from a particular type of family this will happen and it's Mm. to do with the way that trauma's passed on down generations and actually Mm. when I read Harlan and I think this applies to the book of memory as well I was thinking about the ideas of how black trauma specifically particularly Mm -hmm. in America, has been passed down through generations Mm -hmm. because of the slave trades, because of working in the fields and, and, you know, all the horrors that surrounded that. So I think there's a lot of that intergenerational trauma happening. And, yeah, there are questions around how much of that you carry without realising you're carrying it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And... and how unknowable it is to those around them that continue to oppress them. Mm. You know, that sort of the, the way that trauma is, is passed on and people are re-traumatized constantly. Um, even to the fact, I mean, you're talking about colonialism in, in this specific case, you know, it, at one point she talks about Zimbabwe as this, she says in the book sort of blacker than black country that you know it's 
it's you know considered victoria you know kind of victorious in that sense but yet education is done in such a way as to focus on what white people will value so it is the legacy of colonialism it's you know the fact that the local language you could have shown her the local language is not taught in school you know she talks about the fact that um you know her written language of her own native language is that of a, an eight-year-old because it, at school they're they're learning english and they're writing in english and you know so it's their own sort of local language that is is suffering um, but actually, one of the things that makes Lloyd stand out is that he is one of the very few white men who is fluent in Shona and is one of the very, 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 very few people who understands the way that um, sort of the folklore, that local beliefs impact people's lives and impact specifically the lives of of memory's parents and that understanding is what makes him stand out in I mean there are various ways that he stands out but it, that sort of local knowledge and local sympathy and um sort of resonance is what makes him different yeah, and interesting, I think that Lloyd's, she makes Lloyd an academic when, you know, and I picked that bit out when she's talking about Shona and about the English education system being valued. Mm. And it made me think about discussions we've had previously this series about Lurt, um and other things where we've talked about theory and academia and who's making those decisions. And here mm. we've got a white man who's part of that system, but actually understands where those things fall down or are only structurally to, to uphold certain people. And, and so he's sort of an insider outsider. Yeah. Yeah. He's an, he's an interesting character. He has a, there's a bit towards the end where she talks about sneaking into one of his lecture lectures and he's talking about fear. He's, he's lecturing on the um, Greek plays and he's talking about fear and control and to what degree we have control and to what degree we're, we're pushed by forces. And I think this is something we've talked about mm. on the past before, because I will wang on about, about structural structures and structural inequality all day. However, I will also accept that like within that, there is some level of personal responsibility possibly. <laughs> and yeah, so I don't know where I'm going with this because there's like, it's massive. And I, I do think that you could write a dissertation on this book. It's really, yeah, it's, I think the way that it's handled in terms of just the number of, of layers, mm -hmm. as I said, is kind of expert. There's so much going on and there is so much to keep hold of. There are so many threads. And I think it's, I think that kind of thing is particularly difficult in a novel that is told in the first person where the author is speaking through a narrator that does not have the same amount of information as the author does. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like to make that convincing to be able for the, for the reader to, to, to kind of be at the same point as the narrator 
even knowing that something's going to be revealed. I think is it's a very, very delicate balance that I think she she manages incredibly well. Yeah, because I didn't guess. So there were a couple of big reveals and, mm. and I'm like no we've had that conversation they're not twist <laughs> not twist yeah that I didn't that I didn't guess and I've read this book before <laughs> I was like what does happen to Lloyd <laughs> it's been a long time it's not the book um it, it's my memory <laughs> it's fallible <laughs> um sorry I had to get that in um yeah the other thing that I found really interesting and actually oh dare I say enjoyable she writes a lot about prison conditions she says that basically mm. it's Victorian it's you know it's mm. built on an English system surprise surprise again I mean honestly um that was a comment about us and <laughs> it's almost like Go on. we fucked a lot of things up mm. pretty much Radical. the entire world I think Kirsten yeah yeah um, but the bits, the interactions between the pr- women in the prison, I th- I found really fascinating. So there's a bit I where talks about she's in there to uh, when she's first in there, and there's another prisoner who's like basically cock of the prison. I don't know if that's mm. a northern phrase, but I'm hoping people understand what I mean by it. And so, and she takes half of Memory's dinner. She basically makes her give it up. That's what she does mm. and, uh, until the point because. Um, Memory knows they're scared of her because she is a woman who is murdered and is also an albino and they're terrified. So she stares her out until she stops doing it. And it's such a brilliant <laughs> section of describing how every day she just sits there and, and this other woman just gets more and more uncomfortable <laughs> until she stops doing it. It's great. But I think yeah. that, is that the bit where she says about how you know everyone's freaked out because they haven't seen a, a, a an albino accused of murder outside of a Dan Brown novel, which is just <laughs> a fantastic line. I think it is. That made me laugh. The other line that made me laugh is also a prison um, one, where she says there is no hope of escape either. No floating to freedom on sacks of coconut like Papillon or like Andy Defresne digging my way out with a rock hammer and crawling through a river of shit to come out clean on the other side. And that probably made me howl because I have issues with Shosh. I mean, I enjoy Shawshank, but like, yes. Um, and also the idea that obviously a white man would come out of a, a river of shit clean. You know, mm-hmm. It's that privilege. But yeah, that line made me laugh as well. Love a bit of a dig at Shawshank. It is a really funny book in place. Like, consider the darkness of some of the stuff that comes up in it. It is a genuinely funny book in places as well. Um, and it's, I think a lot of that humour comes, it is that, I mean, for want of a better term, that kind of gallows humour of in the prison. Like one of the bits I really loved is when she's talking about the different classifications of prisoners like she's she's the only woman on death row um and there's only a small number you know in the d section which is where the kind of most dangerous prisoners are meant to be um or are in for the most serious crimes there's there's a relatively small number of them um whereas you know a are the prisoners that are about to get out b are the prisoners that are kind of um only in for a, a small amount of time C is the bulk of the prison population um, who are, you know, spending a certain number of years, but, you know, kind of fraud and 
you know that sort of thing but it's that sort of hierarchy that develops within the prison like she refers to repeatedly the group of the baby dumpers of the of these women who have obviously you know committed infanticide or abandoned their children and it's just like you know the, the group of baby dumpers sitting on the lawn um but also you get a couple of these um you get a couple of women who have essentially blagged their way onto the d block um mm. because it's it's a better you know it's less crowded even though it's meant to be the kind of more dangerous section of the prison um you know you get all these kind of wry comments about uh one of the people who defrauded um essentially an ngo kind of thing it's like well you know kind of making assumptions about you know white people making assumptions about what the local black population are doing and them just absolutely playing them like a fiddle which is <laughs> sort of brilliant um so all that again all that sort of background detail um is is you know brilliant and also really oh and um snowdia's wigs mm. so snowdia is um one of the prison guards and she has this kind of mad collection of hair pieces that change you know with alarming regularity and none of them suit her mm-hmm. so it's, you know there's at one point she's wearing you know the naomi campbell um and then the, the rihanna <laughs> and all of them are awful <laughs> Yeah, that proper amused me, partly because it meant my name was in the book. So I was like, oh, look, (laughs) Naomi Campbell. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I really enjoyed that. Parts of it, this is a recommendation if you read The Mars Room by Rachel Kusner, which is very good and obviously set in an American prison. I think this is partly because there are so few books about women's prisons. Mm. But if you enjoyed that, then this is definitely one to read because I thought there were some similarities that might just be a very broad generalisation, but I... Yeah, I found both of them really interesting. I mean, yeah, if we're talking broad generalisations, obviously my mind kept going to Orange is the New Black um, in terms of the community that develops between the prisoners, the rivalries, the infighting, the backing each other up against the guards. I mean, that's a really facile comparison, but um, that sort of... um, the sort of nuances of the different relationships is is sort of like the hierarchy side of it really struck me is this the point Kirsty, where we discover that you watch the tv series that i've never seen i have actually watched a television series um i know i know i know it happens very occasionally <laughs> I, I can confirm i have watched orange is the new black i've never seen it not <gasps> of it not a single minute I've watched something that you haven't. I mean, <laughs> sure. I mean, just as well, this is the last episode of the series because how how could we follow that? <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> <laughs> I recommend it. It's very good. <laughs> so I've heard. <laughs> so I've heard. Mm. It's, it's got a lot of series now, though, and I'm like, I saw someone earlier tweet... Um, that they'd started watching Grey's Anatomy, um, oh, which I watched the like first few seasons of when it was first out forever ago. Mm. And they had tweeted, they just they just logged on it and offered them se- season 16 and they hadn't realised what an emotional investment <laughs> they'd made. 
and I, and I feel a bit that way about Orange is the New Black, even though I know it's it's over. Am I right? It's over. So there, yeah. aren't, there aren't any more being made. So at least there's a set number of series. But I find that now that I'm like, I've been watching How to Get Away with Murder mm. for about five years, I think now. And I'm on season four. Like I just, every so often I go, oh, quite fancy. And, it, and I'll binge like, you know, 10 episodes and then I don't watch it again for two years. <laughs> yeah. See, this is the thing about those kind of big American series. So the one that I have not seen that everyone's aghast that I haven't seen is The Sopranos. It's mm. same. I have not watched a single episode of that at any point. Um, although I have seen a clip of the very last scene, scene of the last episode, so I do know how it ends. Um, That's but it's just to be honest. <laughs> it's just such an undertaking, and like all the series are like twenty odd episodes long. It's just, it's such a commitment. This is why I'm just like, oh, sod it, I'll read a book. Fair enough. I have watched Sopranos, and you know what? This, I couldn't tell you much about it. <laughs> Mad Men, The West Wing, yep. I can talk your ear off. Sopranos. West Wing, I've got encyclopedic, because when I do watch something properly, like I, I kind of hope I focus on it. West Wing, I can, I've got T-shirts. I've, I've been to podcast recordings. <laughs> about the West, like my knowledge of the West Wing is is embarrassing, actually. But then that is about the only TV programme I watched for years. <laughs> Fair enough. I feel like we've gone off on a tangent. I do. I feel like we've gone on a tangent here too, yeah. But, but we got a load of rec- recommendations in for series that people have probably already seen because they're massive. <laughs> yeah. yeah, very useful. Yes, there we go. Um... <laughs> Well, that's plenty to do over Christmas, if uh, over the holidays. You could you could fit it in in your three weeks off, Kirsty. I know. I've got such, I've got, I've actually, for the first time in forever, got a properly long Christmas holiday. And I, I could, I could actually watch something. I'm not promising. So I when we come back them. in 2022, first thing I'm going to do is ask you about the Sopranos. <laughs> oh Oh, god yeah that might be a short conversation (laughs) well there we are um we will be having longer conversations about the books because we've already started planning the next series yay Mm -hmm. oh should mention as well thank you to everybody who's listening because we went over four figures a few weeks ago and we didn't mention it like we should celebrate the fact that we've had well over a thousand listens now which is lovely i know it's so exciting i mean i know like you know compared to some podcasts that's still a very small number but it's more than I thought we would get ever so I'm absolutely delighted with that same and it's great that we just get to chat our usual bullshit and people listen bless them (laughs) so I know since in 2022 we'll be back in the meantime, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Um, rate us on iTunes. We love that. Um, <laughs> and you can follow me and Kirsty on Twitter, where we chat about books. I am at Naomi Frisbee and Kirsty is at the other Kirsty. Thank you very much for listening this year. Thank you. <laughs>